From the Salem Center for Policy at the University of Texas at Austin, welcome to an episode of Policy in Pieces. I'm your host, Scott Bogus. What it all started with with Bitcoin, you know, people can assign any value they want to that, and it's not the government's job to tell them what that value is. And it has become enormously appealing to a lot of people, a lot of people. And I think that that's something that should be respected by the government, and it's something that we should admire. Uh, you know, a $3 trillion crypto token trading environment has been created from scratch without government oversight, That and it's a market that has liquidity and integrity. Sure, there are examples, you know, uh, every now and then of something not necessarily going according to plan. Guess what? There are those same examples, maybe on a more frequent basis, in the traditionally regulated financial markets. That was Brian Quintens, a recently departed commissioner of the Commodities Futures Trading Commission, talking about the rise of crypto assets and the role of government in overseeing them. He joins our last episode of the season to talk about his time at the CFTC, his views on how to promulgate effective regulation, with particular focus on digital assets, including the regulatory challenges they pose, as evidenced by the current jurisdictional tussle over stablecoins. My co-host today is University of Texas computer science student, Shalin Gaddafi. Brian, hello. Welcome to the program. Hi, Scott. It's great to be with you. Thank you for having me. And my co-host today is Shallon. Shallon, uh, say hello. Hey, everyone. Uh, thanks for the introduction, Scott and Brian. Excited that you are here. Thanks, Shallon. It's nice to see you. Nice to be with you. So, uh, Brian, you're a recently departed commissioner of the CFTC, and you joined A16Z, which is shorthand for Andreessen Horowitz, the VC firm. Uh, who's pushing forward a number of policy issues related to Web3. Uh, we've got a lot of questions uh, for you about issues in both areas. And uh, but before we want to ask those questions, we want to get a little bit of background about you like we do with many of our guests. And we're hoping you could tell us a little bit about how you found yourself as someone senior in government and also in industry. And maybe a good place to start is with your time as a congressional uh, staffer. You spent a number of years as senior policy advisor for Congresswoman Deborah Price from Ohio. And I think she was, uh, if Wikipedia is correct, the fourth ranking member on the Republican side. Is that right? Yeah, that's right. At that, at that point. I, so I joined her in, uh, in 2001. Uh, I graduated college in '99. In I went to, to Duke because they had one of the only public policy undergraduate majors at that time. And I'd always had a strong affinity for public policy, wanted to educate myself on how to create craft, good public policy, how to analyze the effects of public policy. And so um, it was a natural fit for me to go there and also to do a number of internships in Washington uh, throughout that program. I focused those internships on the member of Congress that represented my home uh, at that point, which was in Columbus, Ohio, uh, where my parents lived, uh, who was John Kasich at that point, the chairman of the House Budget Committee, future governor of Ohio and uh, presidential candidate. Actually, he had run for president in 2000 as well. And as I worked for him through internships in college, I ended up joining his first presidential exploratory committee going into the 2000 election cycle. As he announced he was going to withdraw from you know the potential presidential race. He also announced he was retiring from Congress. And I switched over to do what I really wanted to do as opposed to you know political elections and, and campaigning to do policy work inside of Congresswoman Price's 
congressional office. She represented the other half of Columbus, through the west side of Columbus and the suburbs and two rural counties outside of, of where I lived. Uh, so she wasn't my home member of Congress, but I was from you know that area. And it was, it was a wonderful thing, uh, not only to work for her because she was very thoughtful. You know, she was a, like what I kind of call and what some people call, you know, workhorse as opposed to a show horse. Uh, she was very well respected across both sides of the aisle. If you wanted something done, you went to Deborah to get it done. And, you know, she was a great person for whom to work personally, but also because it was it was great to be from the area that she represented. And it was a, it was wonderful to be able to bring the relationships and knowledge you know, of the community and the individuals, the business leaders to my congressional work. So I stayed with her for six and a half years. At, when I joined her, she was, I think, the the secretary of the House Republican Conference, if I believe. So she had a leadership position. Uh, but it wasn't necessarily one of of authority or or higher power. And I think two years into uh, my role, maybe maybe a year and a half, she ran for the conference chairmanship, which is one of the the number you know the top four, one of they call it the big four leadership roles, uh, and won the conference chairmanship. And at that point, being the fourth ranking member in the House majority made her the highest ranking woman in the history of Congress, uh, which was obviously before Nancy Pelosi came into power as the um, the speaker at that point, you know, later in, in the 2006 election cycle. So, you know, it was wonderful to be with her. The experience on Capitol Hill is kind of second to none. There are very few, I think, roles and jobs that you can have right after college where you can be so young and yet have uh, such kind of profound impact and responsibility and authority. And what, you know, we can debate whether or not that's appropriate. Uh, it was fascinating and wonderful to, to be in that to be in that role. And I stayed with her for six and a half years. Ultimately, she decided to retire uh, from the House uh, going into the 2008, I think, election cycle. I left her in, in 2007 to career switch and go to business school and explore some areas of the market that I saw some inefficiencies related to uh, policymaking and news flow that uh, started me on a very weird journey to, to the role I just left at the CFTC. So, uh, you know, a question I often have, particularly when you're so young and you jump into public policy, like, did you have a worldview where you were a Republican, joining a Republican member of the House? Did you go and have your worldviews changed while you were there? Like, can you just give us a flavor for like how your worldview developed during that time? Yeah, so I, I kind of always, uh, always viewed myself and my political philosophy as conservative, uh, Republican focused, Republican centric, I think more more limited government, more empowerment of the private sector, more pro-capitalism. Uh, I think a lot of my view of governmental and political philosophy was based off of economics and, and my view as to the power of, you know, the, of free markets and a capitalist society to lift itself higher uh, and, and, and spread that wealth across uh, all segments and, and demographics. And, and I'm, I'm, that's obviously debatable, and anyone can can debate that and come to their own conclusions. But yeah, I had long identified, you know, as a Republican, as a conservative, and uh, it, it it helped, I guess, given that worldview that the two members of Congress, you know, that, that represented Columbus, you know, were both Republican. They, they they didn't necessarily share the same political philosophy at that time. I think House Budget Committee Chairman Kasich was was very conservative. And Congresswoman Price, you know, Chairwoman Price was was more of a moderate. And that transition didn't necessarily 
affect me either. I was doing more political work for, for John and I was doing more policy work for Deborah. But I also viewed, you know, my role, I, I wasn't there to espouse my own political philosophy. I was there to serve them. They were the elected officials. Their districts were different, but their districts voted them into positions of authority to represent them. And so I wanted to engage with, you know, with my boss uh, to understand, you know, how she felt, you know, policy should be implemented and, and how I could, you know, further that. Uh, so, you know, it's, it, again, it's pretty easy. You get in these kind of positions of authority. You have to make a lot of decisions about how you brief your boss, what information you bring to their attention. But ultimately, you have to recognize that you're in service to them through their election to their constituents. And so, you know, I, I hope I played that, that role well. I actually just saw her recently, a couple of weeks ago. She had a retirement party. And it was great to connect with her as well as the very large staff that she had you know, cultivated over her many years in Congress. So she, she, it was a privilege to work for her. Did that role lead you up to being appointed as CFTC commissioner? Uh, you know, in some way. Um, I've never been someone that has kind of a, a five-year plan. I've always kind of felt that I want to do something that interests me something in which I can derive value outside of, you know, uh, compensation, uh, where there's some component of either public service or enhanced benefit, you know, to society. And, and I feel like if, if I can find those roles and do the best that I can in them, then, you know, the future career path will hopefully take care of itself. And I don't think this is a role that you can plan for anyway. Some people can do it and, and might be effective at doing it. But ultimately, you have to be invited to interview for these roles, which means that you have to have, you know, had the reputation, the knowledge, and you know, to some degree, the relationships to be on people's radars. Uh, so it, it did in that uh, some of the other staffers with whom I worked in Deborah's office at some point rose to uh, staffing roles that had some involvement in screening candidates for these kinds of jobs, but. You know, if 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 I were to have just left that role and wanted to do this role, there would have been no chance that that would have happened. The the way I filled my time in between those two things by pursuing passions, educating myself on the markets, going to business school, focusing on finance and accounting, getting a job at a um, a small hedge fund here in D.C. that was focused on the banking sector during the financial crisis and doing fundamental valuation of the you know most sophisticated and complex banks in the world, and I think. You know, not to. I'm from the Midwest, so it's hard for me to brag about it. But I think I did very well at, at that. I think you know we saw, you know, the value in the banking sector there. We saw how sufficiently capitalized they were. We saw the strength of their income statements, the the size of the reserves, uh, and even you know, despite some challenges with potential public policy uh, that could chip away at margins, you know, we, I think we saw the res resilience there to have a very positive view of the value you know in, in the marketplace. You know, but combining you know that background, and and I was there also when Dodd Frank was being discussed on Capitol Hill, and as it was being beginning to be implemented. So I had to understand it. I had to understand the the debate around potential policy outcomes. And once the the policy was finalized, I had to understand the the debate and the spectrum of regulatory outcomes. And once those regulations were finalized, I had to understand you know the impact to the banking sector uh, from uh, mostly from the swaps market reform that ended up being in the CFTC's jurisdiction and the rules around which you know, became a, a big focus of uh, my preparation for being a commissioner at the CFTC and ultimately a lot of the work I did in the agency. So your work as a CFTC commissioner usually, I think, 
commissioners have the background of being an attorney. I could be wrong about the CFTC, but certainly it's that way with the SEC. It, was that unusual for you to go with a background, not being an attorney, but being in business, finance, and accounting? Well, it, it, it was unusual, but I think it's, it's unusual most, mostly because of the selection process. You, you know, these roles are either uh, usually selected by the Senate, you know, a Senate leader and their staff, if it's a minority commissionership, uh, or by, you know, the White House. And usually the pool of applicants involves former Hill staffers uh, that have, you know, law degrees and that, you know, know the CEA or have worked, you know, in, you know, the Senate or the House agriculture committees. Uh, so, you know, lawyers like other lawyers, and that's just kind of how those things sometimes, you know, evolve. And that's fine. So, yes, my my uh, consideration and nomination was somewhat different, but I think it was it was also, in my view, very uh, advantaged to have a, a background in the markets, a background in fundamental valuation and understanding of bank financial statements and business models, uh, an understanding of the economic implications of, of regulatory outcomes that were created by Dodd-Frank. Um, and so, you know, as you think about kind of the scope of public policy, you know, there's there's the legal interpretations of what the law says, which are ultimately or, or usually very flexible. And then there's the, you know, the a lot of, you know, they're the economic outcomes of that. And in the middle, is a whole lot of negotiation that can take place through um, public speeches or statements of commissioners, relationship building uh, by individual commissioners with market participants, uh, with foreign jurisdictions. I took, I don't know, I think 15, 18, 20 trips overseas uh, to meet with foreign counterparts and in, in, in other regulatory jurisdictions, Asia, the Middle East, Europe, uh, predominantly. Uh, and, you know, all of those things informed, you know, my view of, of successful good public policy, you know, for which I could try to advocate using the tools at my disposal, you know, of, of, of statements and speeches and uh, public appearances. So there are a lot of things, I think, that go into, you know, being a commissioner and no one's going to have a 100 percent background in all of them. But I felt like mine, while different, was just as critical. What was your role as a commissioner and what specifically were you involved with? Uh, how did you go about doing it? So um, the CFTC is what's considered an independent agency. And it, it, is, it gains its quote unquote independence by having a bipartisan board, uh, in this case of five commissioners, including a chair. And it's, it's crafted in a bipartisan basis by saying, you know, no more than three commissioners, members can be from the same political party. Um, so there is a balance that exists there. Uh, but what is also kind of not, maybe either not understood or just not known is that, you know, it's the chair that runs the agency, you know, except for the general counsel and the inspector general, the, the, the divisions, the staff of the agency report to the chair. And so as a commissioner, I had three staff members. Uh, they were all attorneys. They all had exp they all had uh, work experience uh, within the CFTC. They had they they had worked for different divisions within the CFTC. So you know we had a very strong. Now, I had a, I had a world class team at the agency that worked with me. But there were only three of us, and we interacted with the divisions to give them feedback, to understand what they were doing, to uh, use their expertise to uh, to help our understanding of what was going on in the marketplace. But also 
to stake out positions on potential regulatory outcomes if the agency was considering rewriting or creating new regulatory rules. Uh, those would be things on which I would have an opinion. And I had probably previewed that opinion through you know, a public statement, trying to get out in front of those issues uh, to make, make sure that my negotiation position was known and was public. I think that's a level of accountability that I wanted to create not only for myself, but provide visibility into my thought process you know, for the general public and for market participants. And so you know, the role of a commissioner is to take those public views, is to vote on uh, certain outcomes, uh, regulatory rules, as well as enforcement matters. Uh, if the agency wants to issue a subpoena, usually um, those come up before the commission and the commissioners to vote on. If the agency wants to file a complaint and, cre and create an enforcement action, that's something on which the commissioners vote. If the agency wants to settle an enforcement case, that's something on which the commissioners vote. So beyond the voting process, then I think it's to represent you know, the agency in an unofficial capacity, because as an individual commissioner, you only speak for yourself, you know, represent the agency in an unofficial capacity, but also represent your views to as wide of an audience as you think is is beneficial, you know, either to serving those regulatory interests that I'm trying to create in that role or that would want to know what my views are. And so, as I said, I gave a number of public appearances around the country. I traveled overseas extensively to develop relationships with other regulators. The markets that the CFTC overseas are incredibly broad. And it was one of the most fascinating things about working at that agency. You know, it, it touches every segment of the economy. It touches agriculture, metals, uh, energy products, interest rates, credit. And it's, and it's an international marketplace that you know, is, is focused in the banking sector, but is meant for risk management. And it's meant for the risk managers in the real economy, for businesses that are, have, have exposure to the risk of, of prices of commodities. And so I think it's underappreciated by the general public how critical those markets are, but the businesses that use them depend upon them heavily. So you mentioned that you're responsible for voting. You were one of five. And I, I suppose a measure passes if there's majority, three. And so my question, my next question to you is, what's it like when you're in the majority party versus the minority party? Uh, you went from a Republican administration where you were in the majority to a Democrat administration, which was in the minority. What's it like to change? And when is it more important to be serving when you're in the majority or the minority? Let me answer the last one first, because I think that impacts the rest of it. I think the most important time to serve is when the commission is being very active. And it can be very active when something is happening in the market or when the chair is deciding to consider a number of rules or actions you know, that need you know, a commission vote. And you know, from that aspect, I think that the, the both chairs under whom I served or with whom I served, since I didn't work for them, but with whom I served, Chris Giancarlo and Heath Tarbert, were both very active. And uh, Chairman Tarbert ended up passing a very large number of rules that not only, I think, appropriately recalibrated some of the regulations that were issued from Dodd-Frank right after the financial crisis that were issued very you know, quickly in that we had the benefit of a number of years of market expertise with and data to be able to recalibrate, but also some things that I think were just you know, fundamentally philosophical differences. You know, we implemented a position limits regime to establish new position limits for new commodities um, in the marketplace. And you know, we had an interpretation of what Dodd Frank said, whether or not that was it was a mandate that we do that. And we think we're very clear that it was not, but that if it was done in the right way, it could have a positive impact on market integrity. And we tried to frame it in a way that it would. I think there were prior view there were there were views about that regulation 
prior to this administration and you know since then or even during uh, that that should have been done in a completely different way for different reasons. So you know in in being in the majority during a period where it was very very active, um, I think was kind of a sweet spot. If you're in the majority or the minority and the commission is not very active, I think it can you know you might want to develop a hobby. <laughs> if uh, if you're in the minority and the commission is very active, I think you have some ability to express some views, but it, I think it also then depends upon the chair and whether or not the chairman or chairwoman wants you know to create consensus among all commissioners or whether or not they're comfortable with you know more of a philosophical quote unquote party line vote uh, for a regulation. And there were a number of examples of both. There were a number of examples, I think, of rules that we issued under Chairman Tarbert where you know it was very consensus driven where the goal was to have all five commissioners on board. And there were some that that just couldn't happen and didn't need to happen. And we weren't willing to sacrifice what we thought was good policy in order to achieve it. So I think it, I think it varies, but I think I served there uh, at the CFTC during a wonderful time. So I have just a question about like the various hats you wear as a commissioner when working with your fellow commissioners. I imagine there are some issues where you're deeply opposed and some you're uh, aligned in and like, how do you develop those relationships? Do you, if there's something that you're really opposed to and you have a problem with, do you avoid it in one conversation, but then have it in another conversation? I mean, how do you interact with your commissioners when you have a wide variety of different views? I, I think, you know, the negotiation aspect of being, you know, a commissioner or, or a legislator, you know, in Congress, I think is one of the most underappreciated aspects of the role. And it's actually, I think it's one of the most fun and also challenging because it's very dynamic and it's very relationship-based. I was lucky to have served at the commission, not only during an active period of time, but where we had wonderful quality people in roles of the commissioner slots. Don Stump, Dan Berkovitz, and uh, Russ Benham, who is now nominated to be the permanent chair under the Biden administration. People who I, you know, for, for whom I have a deep respect and admiration and personal affection. I consider them all friends. And so I think it comes down to relationships. I think part of that strategy is around, you know, what is the, what is the chair after? Uh, how much leverage do I have as a commissioner? If this is something that's only going by a majority vote and I'm one of the three that you know, may be voting in favor of something, I probably have some more leverage to go to the chair uh, and say, this is something that I, I really disagree with in this rule. And it could depend, my vote could depend upon, it. you know, I don't think it's worth doing if this isn't considered. And there were a few times that I exercised that that judgment. I didn't want to do it aggressively because then I, you know, it's, it's kind of like crying wolf. The more you do it, the less seriously people take the threat. And I also viewed myself as someone that wanted to be a team player from the majority perspective, but also from the market's perspective, and that if we were going to accomplish something, you know, I was willing to give you know, some in return. If it's something that's more dynamic, where I was, was trying to convince my fellow commissioners of something, I, I needed to understand where they were. I need to understand what their flexibilities were. I need to understand what was driving their motivations. And some, you know, some of those conversations didn't go anywhere, and that's fine. And, and some of them, we kind of reached a, a middle ground of understanding. And then it kind of came down to you know, discussions around language and what we were comfortable with. Uh, so, you know, it, I think it, it depends on the issue, the person, the situation, the leverage, uh, and every situation was somewhat unique. 
but I think we, uh, my staff and I thought hard about all of those situations to try to implement a pretty good negotiating strategy. And I'm, it's hard to tell from the outside the impact that any one commissioner has on a final outcome. But from, from my perspective, my, my team and I think had some profound impacts on a lot of the outcomes that came out of the commission. Was there any strategy that you used when working with staff? The chairman directs the staff to write proposals that the commission then votes on. Do you tell the staff which way you're going to vote? Do you hold off when you say, I'm going to vote yes or no? Like, how long do you wait? And do you ever let there be a surprise? Like, how do you, how do you work with staff in, in signaling when you're going to support an issue or not? Yeah. So, uh, I mean, I think I tried to be somewhat clear when my position was being sought. I was trying to, I tried to be clear with what I, how I felt about different policy provisions and how I viewed each of their importance. And while I never wanted to surprise anyone, I thought there was at least at least a mutual responsibility to seek out what my position was. You know, no one should ever assume, you know, that I had a certain position. And yet I also didn't want to surprise anyone, you know, by having a certain position. So there was a, there was a mutual, I think, need to uh, communicate and, and seek that out. A lot of times, I think the interaction of the staff to the commissioner's offices, I saw it as being incredibly positive, very early, uh, very considerate. You know, uh, if, if I raised questions that demonstrated some ignorance of the law because I wasn't an attorney, I was, you know, very politely reminded about, you know, what what the you know law says and how it had been implemented in the past. And it, but yet, not being a lawyer allowed me to take more of a thirty thousand foot view and ask some questions that others might not. And sometimes I didn't get very good answers to them. And it allowed me to push harder and it allowed the staff, I think, to rethink why they had answered a certain way for so long. And I have a number of examples of that. So it's not just, you know, something that that I think, you know, I, I saw on one occasion. Uh, so, you know, there, there's there was a lot of productivity that came, I think, from both sides interacting with each other from, you know, as being a commissioner, interacting with the staff. Ultimately, I think the staff being responsible to and, and serving, you know, uh, the chair a lot of their interactions with the commissioners in terms of the timing and the content and the transparency depends upon what the chair wants. And again, I, I, I feel fortunate to have served under both Chris Giancarlo and Heath Tarver, where they had a very, very positive, open dialogue with the staff and what, how they wanted the staff to treat the commissioner's offices. So I was, I was able, and I think my fellow commissioners were able to very early on in the consideration of major rules to get previews as to policy directions you know, that I could think about and to which I could contribute, uh, add some thinking, press harder, and, and, and keep, keep negotiating around as those things were being written so that you know, nothing got you know, set down in concrete and it was too late to change and I hadn't you know, expressed a view on. So I, you know, I, I really compliment the chairs and the staff for t- kind of taking that direction or having that initiative. So I want to circle back to something you mentioned a couple of minutes ago in swaps and then also uh, security-based swaps. You said you worked on the Dodd-Frank Act legislation and both from the government side and also the industry side. And I want to ask this question preview, some questions we're going to have on digital assets, but the Dodd-Frank Act decided to separate the world of swaps and give some to the SEC and some to the CFTC. And I'm wondering if you could just say a couple words about why this market wasn't regulated, why it was important to regulate it, and was it the right solution to split the swaps world across two agencies, and is it working as intended? 
Yeah. Okay. A lot of questions. I, um, at first, I think you know, just despite what you what what people hear when politics can kind of take over policy discussions, you know, there's no black and white. You know, public policy choices have pluses and minuses, and you know, and even those pluses and minuses are debatable within an individual's philosophy. So, you know, whether something was right or wrong, you know, I think that it, it, it always depends on what was the result and what's the response. Um, you know, swaps had been kind of, had, had been outside of you know the futures mandate of the CFTC. You know, the CFTC started from you know precursors uh, in the 1920s under the Grain Futures Act when the Department of Agriculture was trying to supervise grain futures trading, and then that evolved to the Commodity Exchange Act in the 1930s and the Commodity Exchange Commission. That was, you know, interestingly, at that point, it was composed of the Secretary of Agriculture, the Secretary of Commerce, and the Attorney General. So, you know, a little bit of a different caliber than what we have now, but, you know, still confined to futures trading. And then, you know, through the 1970s and the Commodity Futures Trading Act, I think I think that's what, that's what it is, created the CFTC in 1974 and the, and the first chair and commissioners were sworn in in 1975 um, to regulate futures markets. The swaps were always kind of considered outside of that, even though swaps started to grow fairly significantly. They were thought of as bilateral contracts, you know, with the banks in, in kind of the middle. And, you know, there was an opacity to them, but there were also bespoke instruments, or at least, you know, a, a lot of them, the breadth of them were very bespoke. There were some corners that were very large that were somewhat standardized. And in fact, I think you saw, you know, the Intercontinental Exchange kind of futurize the energy swaps market, you know, throughout the 2000s period. So there is a relationship, you know, between the two kinds of instruments. But, um, you know, one of the things that I, uh, going back to having served in Congress, and I've said this before, but, you know, some people may not have heard it, that, you know, I remember as I was first starting, someone from the outside had come into the office that, had, you know, had relationships in the office and they said, and they introduced themselves and said, Brian, you know, I want you to remember Congress is good at doing two things. Nothing and overreacting. And, you know, that was a, it, it, you know, it's, I didn't say that, you know, this person said that. So you can't quote me for saying that. But, but the, um, the point is, is that, and I learned this also in a, in a procedure class that I took at the Library of Congress when I was starting. You know, Congress is not necessarily designed, was not necessarily designed by the founding fathers to create laws. There's an argument to be made that it was designed to prevent bad ideas from becoming law. And therefore, there are a lot of checks and balances that exist, and it's very difficult to create consensus. And usually, it takes a crisis to develop the, you know, the motivation, the time, the focus, the energy to write uh, new legislation and and push it through uh, all of the processes and procedures to get something to become law. So maybe, unfortunately, a lot of legislation and certainly a lot of you know financial legislation is written in response to you know a financial crisis that occurs. You know, the global financial crisis involved a corner of the swaps market. In my view, a very small corner of the swaps market, basically credit default swaps and mortgage-backed securities, you know, which which did have an outsized impact on the banking system because of you know of of the dynamics there. But the response was through Dodd Frank to give the CFTC most of the jurisdiction over all of the swaps market, while carving off you know what they viewed as an appropriate piece for security-related swaps, you know, to the SEC. 
you know, the view was if, if there are swaps on securities, then it probably implicates the securities markets more than it implicates a concept of derivatives. You know, and, and since swaps and futures are meant as hedging vehicles and, you know, for risk management purposes, you know, security futures and security based swaps are more tied into the securities themselves and probably have a better basis for regulation, monitoring, oversight, enforcement at the SEC. And so, you know, did they get it right? I, I don't know. I think so. I, what they did makes sense. You know, I think it, it creates a process. It creates a bureaucratic process where the agencies have to interact and have to agree. But, you know, that sh also shouldn't be something that we dismiss as, as, as being unlikely or ridiculous in, in government. You know, we should expect government agencies that regulate similar markets that may have jurisdictional issues to talk to each other and to resolve differences with each other and have positive relationships with each other. And I was surprised that that wasn't necessarily the case when I came in to the role. I was, I was happy uh, to have been involved to some degree uh, through the empowerment of both Chris Giancarlo and Heath Harvard uh, to address harmonization issues and relationship issues with the SEC, with, with my counterpart there, Hester Peirce, who was designated you know, in that capacity by Jay Clayton. And you know, what I had heard from the inside and the outside was that the relationships at that point had never been better you know, when, I, when I ended up leaving. Um, and that's what we should want. And I think that's what we can all hope for. But I think it depends on having, you know, the view from the top by the chairs. It depends upon having people intimately involved uh, that have some level of authority. They may not necessarily be, you know, the chairs that, you know, have to answer to the staff or take particular sides. Um, and I would hope that that is something that both current chairs and future chairs continue and uh, continue trying to address and empower through uh, designated commissioners. So with crypto assets or digital assets more generally, we may be going down the same path in terms of jurisdictional authority. We want to ask you some questions before we do. That'd be a good time to ask you a question about your new role at A16Z. Can you start by telling us, you know, why you're there and why you chose to go there and uh, what you're doing? What does it have to do with digital assets, if anything? Well, I mean, I've, I've always had a, a huge amount of respect for and admiration for, you know, the, the, the people, Mark and Ben and their team, Katie, Chris, you know, and then the new general partners, the vision, uh, the dedication to founders. It was obvious to me that they have a completely different mindset when it comes to venture capital than what I had generally assumed was the case or even may have thought applied, you know, to, uh, to them. I mean, they treat founders as, as sacred and they are there and willing to stay there and stand by those founders in those businesses through thick and thin and be there for, you know, very, very long time horizons. And it's, you know, as, as I, I, I've said this before and I'm not, I don't know if it makes sense, but. I don't necessarily view my relationship with them or, or what they do as having, you know, an investment track record as opposed to kind of a visionary track record. I mean, they, they can see the future and being around them kind of, it feels like hearing about the future from the people that helped create, you know, the present experience. And, you know, if they call and they want me involved, I'm going to say yes. And it is, and it's been a thrill to be involved. It, it's, it's one of a, a number of things that I, I'm going to be doing uh, and, and am doing after my service, you know, in, in the government, but it was a 
it was a wonderful place to begin my post-government career, and I couldn't be more thrilled that it was the first thing I announced. I had spent a lot of time uh, at the commission through sponsoring the Technology Advisory Committee. We had five advisory committees at the agency, and each commissioner and the chair sponsor one of them. I sponsor the Technology Advisory Committee. I spent a lot of time through that committee sponsorship, but also through some interactions with the staff, participation in, in public conferences, and in um, speeches, in kind of visionary statements, trying to you know, advocate for the freedom of financial market participation and the innovation that I saw in the development of crypto assets, um, and in understanding you know, the, the good or the harm that could happen from a regulatory perspective, or where the private marketplace could step in and do some of that on their own. And you know, as I had said before, given the breadth of the market that the CFTC oversees, all aspects of the economy, 400, 500 trillion dollars of notional value of derivatives, you know, to have created a, you know, a, a certain amount of a reputation within the crypto space, you know, from my position in the agency, I think speaks a lot about my dedication to that, to that technology. And so it was a natural uh, fit and interest for me to want to pursue that passion and that belief with, I think, you know, the, the, the best name in kind of the visionary field. The past few years, we've seen uh, immense attention towards cryptocurrencies. They've crossed the trillion dollar mark. Where do you think is the future of crypto assets and digital assets more broadly? And how will they shape our future economy? So I think it's easy, you know, from, from my prior role in the government, it's easy, you know, to take the view that these are all just individual products. These are individual tokens. They may or may not have a specific purpose. People may or may not be investing in them or owning them for a specific reason. And we can look at them somewhat individually. Through my, my own education, through my conversations with A16Z, through uh, you know, how I've started to develop a view, uh, which I think aligns very well with the firms, you know, is tokens are going to be the means to an end of completely transforming the internet and more broadly, possibly the economy to create user ownership over networks and to allow the creators of value to more directly capture that value as opposed to having it go to a centralized entity. You know, right now, the web one version of things was kind of just taking things that exist in the world and putting them on the internet. Right. You know, scanning a magazine and putting it up online, you know, scanning a newspaper and putting it up online, you know, having access to things on the Internet that exist in the real world. Web two was kind of user generated content uh, right through networks. Facebook relies on all of its users to create content. Twitter relies on all of its users to create content. TikTok relies on all of its users to create content. But yet those centralized entities capture all the value from you know, the content created by everyone else. And while they, you know, share some of that through incentives or through sponsorships or payments or advertisements, you know, a huge amount of that value is captured and controlled by, you know, centralized firms. Crypto assets tokens are going to empower and are currently empowering, you know, the, the builders of networks, the users, you know, the contributors to be able to own and capture the value of that creation through you know, DAOs, through tokens, and it's, it's, it's already tr starting to transform industries. You know, we're seeing examples of it in the music industry where you know, a new model of releasing music 
and the ability for you know consumers to resell music uh, can still allow for you know the content creator, the artist, to capture value consistently at a higher percentage than what they would normally receive from you know their interaction with the record. I think you know the example I heard Chris Dixon say was that you know out of the I think it was eight million artists on on Spotify, I think fourteen thousand earn more than fifty thousand dollars. You know, which means that only fourteen thousand you know people ha- make any kind of a standard of living off of that. And that's the model, right? It's not to pick on on that company, but there's a huge amount of value capture uh, and centralization that I think can benefit from tokens. Now, you know, that's the that's the economic value creation aspect of what I think tokens can empower, which is why it's so important that governments don't overreact to this and do something that could preclude tokens' use and ultimate ability to transform that sector. But even more broadly speaking, I mean, you look at what it you know what it all started with with Bitcoin, you know, people can assign any value they want to that. And it's not the government's job to tell them what that value is. And it has become enormously appealing to a lot of people, a lot of people. And I think that that's something that should be respected by the government. And it's something that we should admire. Uh, You know, a three trillion dollar crypto token trading environment has been created from scratch without government oversight. That, and it's a market that has liquidity and integrity. Sure, there are examples, you know, uh, every now and then of something not necessarily going according to plan. Guess what? There are those same examples, maybe on a more frequent basis in the traditionally regulated financial markets. So I think we should kind of step back and say, okay, what, what has been created here? And can we admire that and help build on it as opposed to force it into something else just for the sake of capturing it in a regulatory jurisdiction? So I want to ask a question about the extent to which our population, our citizens understand this vision. And maybe I'll ask in a somewhat controversial way, but if we were to survey, let's say, 500 students from the University of Texas and then survey the 500 plus members of Congress about their level of understanding of the future of digital assets and cryptocurrencies, who understands more? Well, um, I'm not sure I'm going to answer that question. Um, You know, I I guess it would depend, you know, the the population of Congress is set. So I guess it depends on which, you know, if it's just a random generated population, I would assume that students, you know, a younger generation have a more advanced understanding of innovation generally and a more advanced understanding of crypto assets. So, um, but, but I also want to be clear, you know, I mean, we talked about my time in Congress. I learned so many things during that time period, one of which is how busy members of Congress are. You know, a lot of it's, there's some sense that they don't do anything. They take all these vacations, all this time away, and they, which is when they actually go home to their districts and campaign and or have events where they meet their constituents and interact with them, which I think is valuable. But when they are you know, in Washington, when they are busy, when they are voting, I mean, they are considering policy issues on every single you know, dynamic and they need to understand them. They sometimes they need to communicate about them. And the information flow and the responsibility is absolutely enormous. And so I don't fault members of Congress who don't necessarily have a, a, a robust knowledge of this. And I think it's part of you know, our job of people who, who believe in this space and are, are working to try to understand the innovation to help educate and advocate uh, for that. And I think that that's happening and it's happening, you know, fairly well. I think, you know, we're at the beginning stages of it, but I think it's, it's, it's only going to increase and it's already showing some dividends. But what, what we don't want to have happen is people that don't understand it 
just take the most negative view possible and then preclude preclude the future innovation or create value judgments that impact people's ability to exercise their own value judgments. And I think that's something that we need to consistently watch out for. So, you know, I don't mind members of Congress being busy and this not necessarily being on their radar. You know, I'm working to try, you know, to bring, you know, some education to that. And, and uh, A16Z is working very hard to kind of bring education to that. Everyone, we are releasing a lot of policy papers on Web3 that are open, you know, that are publicly available. And a number of trade associations are doing the same thing. So hopefully, you know, through through those publications, through that advocacy, through that education, uh, members of Congress can um, start to see the innovation, how important this is going to be. That was a fair answer to an unfair question. <laughs> So we, we came up with a series of, uh, with respect to the regulation of digital ads, the series of true-false questions for you. We're going to run through them and you can answer however you feel. Is there uh, a right answer? You're going to tell us there's a right answer. So <laughs> I'll uh, tell you what I think. All right. The true or false, crypto assets are all fraud, misconduct, and undue speculation. I think you've already answered that, but we'll let you answer it False. Again. Absolutely uh, false. And I think everybody knows that it's false. And I think the people that say that are selling something. True or false? Regulators know how to regulate them. You know how to regulate crypto assets? Yes. Uh, I'd, I'd say false. I think there's too much innovation happening and the, the, the products are too different from the current regulatory rule sets that would uh, require you know, some more education and a rethink of some existing rules to um, regulate them appropriately if they were going to be regulated. True or false? Crypto assets are all securities. Uh, well, that's, that's absolutely false because we already know that Bitcoin and Ether are considered non-security commodities since they have futures contracts on them that are traded within the CFTC's jurisdiction. If they were viewed as securities, then they would be, you know, back to our prior discussion, they would be viewed as security futures contracts and would fall under a different regime with shared authority by the SEC and the CFTC. So at least those two, there is some clarity around. I think almost all are or should be viewed as pure play commodities, not necessarily securities. You know, in order to build networks, you have to start somewhere. Networks don't just exist. They don't just, you know, create themselves. So I think there's there needs to be a different kind of understanding of or application of, you know, how tokens can fuel network development and whether or not that represents the ownership of a common enterprise. So we're going to come back to the commodity question in a second, but true or false, regulators have all the existing authority they need to regulate crypto assets. Well, I think this very subjective question depends on who you ask in terms of what more authorities they want. I think that there are plenty of authorities to regulate, regulate what you need to regulate for crypto assets. If they are securities, then they fall under the SEC's purview. If they're commodities, it's no different than me going to Home Depot and buying lumber. Again, this private marketplace has evolved with a high degree of integrity, liquidity, price discovery, and also, I think, has developed that way because the community places a tremendous report, importance on uh, individual responsibility and taking ownership for your own decisions and understanding you know, what it is you know, that you are purchasing. And as a result of that, there are a number of different organizations that are trying to bring more informational awareness to what tokens are, what they do, what they represent, how they're being issued, who owns them. And so, you know, I think the, the, the best question to ask is, why should they be regulated as opposed to what, what, what might happen if they aren't regulated? The individual responsibility is something that I think needs to be preserved and admired. 
And the more the government steps in and starts creating rules and making value judgments for people on who can participate, who can't participate, and how they can participate, the more you erode that and the more, you know, an individual that gets burned blames someone else. And I don't think that's as healthy as the market that we have. So the President's Working Group recently issued a report on stablecoins. What is a stablecoin and how important are they in the development of the crypto market? And what is the significance of this report? So, I mean, I, th I think as, as probably a lot of your listeners know, I mean, a stable coin is something that's supposed to represent a stable value of something else. You know, it can be another crypto token. It can be something other than a fiat currency, or it can be, you know, a, a fiat currency. There are a number of different examples, and they can be issued in a number of different ways. They can be algorithmic stable coins, where an algorithm tries to balance the value. There can be fiat-backed stable coins, where, you know, a, a centralized entity is supposed to match, you know, a reserve, you know, uh, on a unitary basis per stablecoin issued. And if that reserve is all cash, then that's one model. If it's not all cash, then it's, you know, something else. Uh, and there could be, you know, could be a regulatory treatment, potential regulatory treatment of that. And they basically fuel transactions, you know, within the DeFi ecosystem. And so, you know, uh, uh, the backbone of DeFi has been kind of built on, on stablecoins. And I can't remember what the latest estimate is of stablecoin marketplace, but I think it's 100 to 200 billion dollars right now, which is large until you look at, you know, the assets under management of BlackRock or Fidelity, which are in the, you know, upper trillions of dollars. And um, getting to the PWG report. So just so everyone knows, the president's working group on financial markets is a group that is composed of the Treasury Secretary, the chairman of the Federal Reserve the chairman of the SEC, the chairman of the CFTC, and then the chair of the FDIC and the comptroller of the currency are observers. I think, I think non-voting observers. And so those are the agencies that you know, form that, that working group. And this report came out representing consensus views you know, of, of, of those organizations, of those departments and agencies. And, you know, my, my view was, you know, I had a couple views on it. The first is that I think it appropriately deferred to Congress about whether or not a new regulatory regime was necessary and if so what it should you know in, entail uh, I didn't I didn't think that it was overly prescriptive in terms of what it called on Congress to do which I thought was interesting I was probably I was guessing it may have been more prescriptive in calling for specific you know policy provisions within new legislation it mentioned or it associated stable coins with potential systemic risk uh, which is something with which I disagree. And I think that that term gets thrown around way too loosely in Washington, D.C. Uh, without justification and appears to be only used to benefit regulatory jurisdictions. The more it is used with definable terms and in a predictable way, the better off financial markets and the public and innovation and regulation will be. And again, you know, compare apples, you know, to apples. I, I, I don't know why you know, a $200 billion market with, with a wide variety of formats and organizations and issuance methods is con considered potentially systemically important, but yet asset managers that manage trillions of dollars are not. I Frankly, I don't think either of them are, but I think a level of consistency is usually required in kind of making these decisions, or at least, you know, should be addressed. So I think, you know, the, the, the premise being that they could be they could be systemically important or could become systemically important, particularly to uh, payment systems 
and money supply uh, is, you know, w- was notable. But again, you know, I don't think that the Fed or the Federal Reserve needs to regulate everybody out of the market that could implicate its, you know, its money supply authorities or power. You know, they have tools to use to help. But the more they think that they are, they are or should be the only game in town, I think the worse off are all. So let's uh, talk about the jurisdictional issue for a second. The CFTC recently claimed by way of a settlement with Tether and Bitfinex that the crypto asset Tether is a commodity subject to CFTC regulation. If you read the text of the PWG report, it says a stable coin may constitute a security commodity and or a derivative. And I'm wondering is if there's a lot of coordination, was it just coincidental that the CFTC made the determination the week before the PWG report? Is there any inconsistency there? Is that part of a jurisdictional tussle? How should we interpret that? Well, I think it's a reason to be disappointed in a little bit of the lack of clarity of the PWG report, that it didn't go into more granular detail about things that are each and why they would be one versus the other. From a timing perspective, I'm not sure. I think from from my experience, enforcement cases are usually announced when they're ready to announce. They're not held you know, for a specific purpose, specifically, you know, either a policy purpose or even a political purpose that would not necessarily be um, acting with, some, with high integrity. And I think the enforcement division deserves uh, much more honest consideration than, than that. So I think that this was just done through the normal course like it, it always is. But what the way I read that that enforcement release was that it viewed the way Tether had advertised itself to be a commodity. It represented that it was 100% cash backed so that you were purchasing it for cash and it could be held with cash, you know, it would be a cash would be held and it could be redeemed for the same amount of cash. So it's a, it's a cash per commodity transaction that could be redeemed at that face value. And the CFTC said, okay, well, that's a commodity, you know, something that you Buy for cash that's, you know, with cash being held and not invested, not having any other kind of treatment and that the organization that's that has that cash on reserve, you know, stepping into the market and being willing to purchase it back, you know, is a is a commodity transaction. And I think that that's created some confusion. And I think it would be wonderful for the agency, the chairman or other commissioners to clarify, you know, some of that ambiguity or add some more color to the different variety of, of things that they could see that would fall under the purview of, of commodities. But that's also not necessarily, I think, what the CFTC claimed Tether is now. I'm not sure that they said, uh, and I could be wrong, people could have different interpretations. I'm not sure that they said what Tether is now as a, you know, as a, as a token that can be purchased with cash, with that cash, you know, invested or used for other purposes with other things constituting the reserves is a commodity. I'm not sure that's what they said. And I think that there is there is the potential for that to have, have some kind of investment management, you know, regulatory treatment. You know, it's, it's possible. I, I see a, you know, I see an overlap there. Uh, but a lot of things come into play there in terms of you know, what you're advertising something as, how you're holding yourself out, you know, whether or not how much active management there is, is it a centralized entity, is it overseas, is it targeting U.S. customers, all those kinds of things. There was a recent call by the industry, Coinbase Global in particular, that there will be a single regulator that supersedes CFTC and SEC. What do you think about this idea? Should there be a single regulator that oversees the digital asset marketplace? If so, any view on who is best positioned to do so? And if not, how well are regulators 
doing in coordinating over command on digital assets and what could they do better? So I think I think the, the, the proposal was um, was positive. And I think the reason it's positive is because, you know, that it, creating a new regulator from scratch that is designed to have, you know, the expertise from initiation, you know, in this new kind of technology and innovation and regulate it appropriately, you know, that should be just as likely an outcome as just squeezing all this stuff into the existing regulatory set, regardless of the consequences. And so, you know, in, ter- in terms of pegging one as being unlikely, to me, they should both be as likely. And I thought it was additive to the policy spectrum by, you know, articulating that possibility. You know, I think it would be challenging to get to that step, creating new things outside of a, you know, financial crisis is not necessarily what Congress does frequently. And so I would expect the most likely outcome would be for Congress to look at the existing authorities and the existing expertise of the you know, current financial you know, regulatory agencies and try to understand if there are holes, number one, should they be filled and why? You know, what's the policy outcome that you're trying to achieve versus the, you know, the status quo and whether or not it's additive to the future innovation of this technology? And then number two, if so, you know, how and, and by whom? And I think the most value is kind of being exchanged from a centralization perspective, you know, through centralized exchanges. Uh, so that's kind of a natural, I think, focus for policymakers to want to say, okay, these could, these could be points of failure, you know, in this marketplace. This is an area that could benefit from, you know, some level of regulation, of oversight, of forced transparency to the extent that the, the exchanges, the trading platforms don't do it themselves, which I think that they should be and I think are trying to work towards. And then determine, uh, okay, well, you know, we have some market regulators that regulate exchanges, two in particular, the SEC and the CFTC, and which, you know, whose jurisdiction does this best fit? You know, I think that there are aspects of uh, securities exchanges that do not fit this kind of marketplace. And the United States has long made a determination that spot commodity transactions uh, do not need a regulatory structure. Uh, so they have been purposefully omitted from any agency and specifically the CFTC's purview. So it would be a very new thing to do that in general, but also to put it within the CFTC. Given that there are futures contracts you know, on Bitcoin and Ether, there is a jurisdictional argument and there is a level of expertise at the CFTC in monitoring the integrity of those futures contracts and trying to monitor for uh, fraud or manipulation in those futures contracts and in the trading of those futures contracts. There is a level of expertise that is building around the spot market of, of crypto trading. So I think there's a strong argument to be made there, too. The CFTC's committees of jurisdiction are the House and Senate Agriculture Committees. And so if if Congress is going to think about the CFTC playing a role, it is those committees that are going to need to hold the pen you know, and write that legislation. And I was encouraged about two things recently. I was encouraged about the uh, House Agriculture Committee Republicans uh, releasing a draft, a discussion draft of a prior bill that had been introduced called the Digital Commodity Exchange Act that would create a new voluntary registration regime within the CFTC to focus on you know, crypto exchanges. And I was also encouraged uh, in Commissioner Acting Chair 
Russ Benham's testimony in his nomination to be the fully confirmed chair, where uh, Chairwoman Stabenow, the Senate Agriculture Committee, the first thing she mentioned in her statement and the first question she asked was around crypto assets and whether or not the CFTC had the appropriate authorities. And if so, you know, whether or not the Agriculture Committee and Congress generally could be supportive. I took that as a positive that the Agriculture Committees want to be involved in this discussion. And, you know, like everything, it's, you know, there are probably some that are going to need some members that are going to need further education. But in terms of the leadership, uh, I, w- I was thrilled to see those members of Congress in positions of authority express a view that the CFTC has a seat at the table. So, Brian, you've been extremely generous with your time. We got through many of the questions you wanted to ask, not all of them. So I'm going to ask uh, Shalen to make a game time decision here and pick the last question to ask you. All right. Ryan, given your experience with CFTC and now A16Z, what would you advise someone who wants to enter the policy space? Uh, how should they balance between legal and technical parts of the space? Well, I think I personally think that they should try to focus on both, but I think translating the technology into public policy or legal terms is probably the area that where, where the most help is needed. You know, we have dedicated technologists in the market that understand this stuff very deeply, that have no understanding of the regulatory landscape or the law or of, you know, the rule sets. And we have, you know, lawyers and the agencies who have, you know, lots of authorities over lots of, of different, you know, assets and very large markets who are trying to spend a little bit of their time, you know, catching up on not only what these products are, but what all the different potential legal and regulatory treatments are. And so I would try to focus equally on both. I mean, that, that may be an unfair answer to your question, which was asking for a one or the other. And so I'm going to split the difference. But just like I came into this role as a non-attorney, I still needed to understand the law. I needed to have people advising me that had deep expertise in the law to combine with you know, my knowledge of public policy generally, my political philosophy, and my experience in the marketplace. So I don't think you can do it from one lens alone. And if you want to make yourself the most effective advocate, you do need to understand. We need more translators. Brian, thank you so much for your time for us. It was a pleasure to have you on. Scott, uh, Shalon, thanks so much for having me. It was a delight to speak with you. Looking forward to staying in touch. To our Policy and Peace listeners, this concludes Season 2. We hope that you learned something about financial regulation, which we recognize may not always be top of mind for most of our listeners. Our aim was to make the issues both interesting and accessible. And this year, we joined the UT Podcast Network, which led to a disclaimer that the views expressed represent ours and the guests, not necessarily the University of Texas in Austin. The background research was performed by a team of talented UT students who volunteered their time in exchange for the learning experience. Nathan, Hamad, Sloan, Minje, Rui, Ternika, Ashish, Doe, Noah, Shawan, you are indispensable. And a big thanks to our student executive producers, Zoe Tarr and Abby Sawyer. Thanks for making the process easy. Today's episode may provide a glimpse of what is to come next. Brian talked about the future of finance, financial products and instruments going digitally native. Cryptocurrencies, utility tokens, stable coins, NFTs, smart contracts, distributed ledgers, and an evolving decentralized finance, DeFi ecosystem is causing major disruption and is set to change everything we know and understand about financial markets. 
To believe this, look no further than the international organizations like the Financial Stability Board, Basel Committee on Bank Supervision, International Organization of Securities Commissions, the Committee on Payments and Market Infrastructure, and the Bank of International Settlements, all are putting considerable resources to understanding the issues, which are not well understood outside a handful of experts. With season three, we hope to do our part to change that. So stay tuned and thanks for being a listener. Mm-hmm.